Well, I am, I'm Greg Hampton. I'm one of the pastors at the North Campus, and I'm friends with Glenn, and so I got the privilege of being asked to fill in for him. He's, he's doing a wedding this morning. Um, some of you probably got an invitation to that and forgot about it, so if you need to go to the wedding now, um, we'll, we'll wait just a second. Anybody? You know? All right. Well, today I get to preach on Acts 26, and we're getting kind of close to the end, and I've I was hoping to actually preach on Acts 28 because I actually started this series um, all the, a long time ago with Acts 1, and so I kind of thought it would be cool to bookend with the beginning and the end. But in Acts 26, it's, it's Paul. He's telling his story. He's telling his testimony again. And um, a couple weeks ago, I was actually in Europe when I kind of was thinking about how I was going to get to preach on this. And I got to visit Oxford. And, and Oxford, of course, is, is where... These incredible stories like Lord of the Rings and The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe were written. I mean, we are still, we're still making movies from the books that were written in this place by Tolkien and Lewis. And they've been gone for 40 and 50 years. And something that I've been learning about writing lately is that it really matters that when you're writing something, that you're paying attention to who it is that you're writing to and who's listening to you. Uh, my wife, is, she's a writer, and she has a young adult middle grade fiction book that's being edited right now, and her editor is having her move things around. She's taking things from the second chapter and moving it to the beginning, this, that, and the other thing, because it makes more sense that when, when a middle grade, when a young adult picks it up and they read it, that this first thing that they read is what's going to catch them. It's going to make sense that it's written to that kind of person, that age range. And with Paul, this is the third time he's giving his testimony. You guys have heard his testimony over and over and over again. And so when you've heard something over and over again, you think that you know all the pieces of it. But Paul, what he's doing here is he's actually adding little pieces to it. He's left some things out. He's added some things back in because of who he's talking to, because of who his audience is. And so in Acts 26, let's just talk a little bit about the background of how we got to where we're at. So right now, Paul has been in prison for two years in Caesarea, and the reason he's in, in prison in Caesarea is because when he was in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish leaders tried to kill him. And so being a Roman citizen, he got sent uh, to Caesarea. And he had one governor. Now, after two years, this governor has not made a decision of what to do with him. And so we have a new governor named Festus. And he's kind of done that thing where he's left it to the next guy to decide what to do with him. And so Festus comes in. And the Jewish leaders come to him, and they think, well, this is the new guy. Can, can, we can convince him. And they say, hey, we want you to send him back to Jerusalem because he should stand trial there. And so Festus goes to Paul, and he says, Paul, they, they want to send you back. Would you be willing to go back? Now, get inside Paul's mind a little bit here. He's been in prison for two years. He's been just sitting there for two years. All the years previous to that, he'd been traveling everywhere on missionary trip after missionary trip, planting church after church, and now for two years... He's just sitting in prison. And so Festus says, would you want to go back to Jerusalem? And he says, no. No, I don't want to go back to, to Jerusalem. And so he actually appeals to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, if, if you were on trial, you could appeal to Caesar, and basically you'd get sent to Rome. And, and at this point, he didn't really have to do this. You, you find out at the end of chapter 26, he didn't have to do this. But with Paul, you always got to wonder if he didn't have a grander plan, if he didn't have in the back of his mind... I'm going to appeal to Caesar, and I'm going to get to preach the gospel to Caesar. I'm going to get to preach to the ruler of this entire empire and possibly change everything in one fell swoop. And so Festus 
not completely sure what to do. He knows that he'll send him, but he doesn't know what to put in the letter. I mean, he's the new guy. And the first thing he does is the new guy. He doesn't want to, to screw up by sending someone to Rome without a good explanation as to why he's being sent there. And so just, it so happens that King Agrippa, who is the quote-unquote king of the Jews, um, is coming into town. And so he asks King Agrippa if he will hear what Paul has to say so that he can help him shape this letter that he's going to write when he sends Paul off to Rome. But king Agrippa is the reason that Paul shapes his story. This is the guy, this is the reason that he adds things, this is the reason that he leaves things out because of who he's talking to. Now, King Agrippa, he is a puppet king. He's a puppet king of the Jews. Um, he's basically a, a Roman convenience. It, it, they put this person in power to try and kind of be a middleman between Rome and, and Israel. Uh, now, his family, generations before, had converted to Judaism. But he actually converted to Judaism as a part of an invasion. And so you really have this question as to whether his family ever really believed this or really ever held on to the roots of what Judaism was. And so now he's got power and he's got position. And you wonder, is this really all it is to him? Is it just power? Is it just position? So three years earlier, or actually many years earlier, three rulers stood before one of the other king of the Jews that most of us, probably all of us, know about. They came looking for the real king of the Jews. They came looking for the prophesied Messiah. They were standing before King Agrippa's great-grandfather. His name was Herod the Great. And when Herod heard that, that the prophesied Messiah, the true king of the Jews, had been born, he actually commits mass murder. He's trying to stop this light. He's trying to snuff it out. So imagine Paul... I imagine Paul knew part of this story. And he, he's standing before King Agrippa, knowing that this light had been tried to be snuffed out before, and now he has a chance one more time to share the gospel with this king. You know, and I don't, I don't really think it's a coincidence. I think when you read through the Bible, a lot of times we think, oh, wow, it's kind of cool how that worked out that way. It's not a coincidence. Jesus actually says to his disciples in the book of Mark, he says, but you will be dragged before rulers and kings, but when you do, do not worry about what to say, but only say what the Holy Spirit gives to you to say in that moment. So now Paul is standing here, and the Holy Spirit is helping him shape his story. So let's get into it. All right, so Acts 26, if you guys want to open your Bibles, you can. I think that it's going to be up on there, but I typed it in late last night, so the, the punctuations could be wrong. I apologize. So Acts 26, 12 through 14, Paul has been saying, listen, I used to travel around, I used to persecute Christians. He says, on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Remember, Paul, he's shaping his story for the person that's listening to it. This is the first time that he mentions this idea of kicking against the goats. All right, how many of you guys ever heard the phrase, kicking against the goats? And how many of you know what it means? All right, it's kind of one of those phrases that you've heard people use before, but you don't know exactly what it means. A goat is literally what we would call a cattle prod. It's something that you, you stick somebody or something with to try and get it to go the direction it's supposed to go. It's a farm implement 
that when, when, when oxen were plowing something, if they started to get off track, they would prod them with this and it would get them back where they were going. But the, the thing about the Romans, remember that Paul is speaking in this sense where Agrippa is kind of half Roman, half Jewish. The Romans had actually spiritualized this phrase. Their first thing that they would think about wasn't a farm. The first thing that they would think about when they heard kicking against the goats was this idea that you were actually going against what the gods wanted. This idea that you were going against what the gods wanted. And now here Paul is saying that Jesus is saying this, that it's hard for you to kick against the goats. And Paul is telling Agrippa that even though he thought that he had it all figured out, even though he had authority, even though he had power, even though he'd been sent out to do whatever he wanted, even though he thought that he knew his religion inside and out, he's telling King Agrippa that there was something new, that, that in him trying to push so hard that he was actually pushing against what God was trying to show him. And that here at that moment, when he sees this bright light, that that revelation was unavoidable. He's telling King Agrippa that this truth, this hope that I'm on trial for, this hope is ultimately unavoidable. You know, King Agrippa may have been a puppet king, but it doesn't mean that he didn't have a spiritual side or that he wasn't religious. He's actually the guy, um, his role, he was responsible for appointing the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem. He, he knew all If you go back and read Acts 26, he, Paul is continually kind of prodding in Agrippa, going, you know this already, don't you? You know about this. Oh, well, oh, great king, you already know this. But it seems like Agrippa is in this place where he has power and he's satisfied with that. He's got authority and position, but he's not really interested in having the full understanding. So a great question for us here is... Have we been knocked off our high horse? Paul gets knocked off his high horse. Have we been knocked off of our high horse? Are we willing to let God change our minds? Have we closed our hearts to the idea that there might be new revelation because we think we have it all figured out? How many of you have ever had a situation where someone's telling you a story about something that God did and they're, they're convinced that God did this? And they're, they're excited about it, and they can't believe that God did this thing. And in your mind, or in your heart, or even out loud, you say, God doesn't do that. Probably most of us. We, we have this idea that we have God figured out. Paul thought that he had God figured out. But surely there's things that God can still do to show us that we don't yet understand, things that we haven't yet seen. But the cool thing that, that Acts 26 teaches us, and then Paul puts into his story this time, is that God doesn't reveal hope to us. God doesn't give us new understanding of something without having a purpose behind it, without having a reason that's attached to it. In these next verses, Paul shapes his story to make it clear what that was. All right, so verses 15 and 16. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. The Lord replied, Now get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. The first thing here is that Jesus says, I have appeared to appoint. I've appeared to to appoint you. I haven't appeared for no reason. I just didn't come to knock you off your horse and to push you down. 
I've come to give you purpose. I've come to give you a reason for what I've shown you. He's given him an appointment. And I think that he probably gives us appointments too. And this past week I saw on, on Twitter, a pastor, he, he put something up that said, there is no breakthrough without follow-through. There is no breakthrough without follow-through. How much revelation is wasted because we leave it where it started? How many things do we learn that God shows us that we leave right here and we see that God has appeared to us and he's shown us something, but we don't accept the appointment that's attached to it? What if we thought of everything that God teaches us as like a telegram that we're supposed to be going up to someone's door and delivering to them? That there is nothing that's just for us. I think that some of us, there might be actually some of us here right now that that God put something in your heart years ago. He said something to you. And you've left it there for some reason. And I hope that as you see Paul's story, you start to let that bubble back up. You start to see that there's an appointment that has come along with him appearing to you. That there's a purpose behind him showing you something. You know, Paul goes on in 17 and 18, he says, And I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The second thing he says, he says, I will rescue you to send you. You know, Jesus isn't making Paul a promise that he's never going to suffer or nothing's ever going to hurt, right? I loved what Nico said. You, know, you make all things work together for my good. And how Nico was describing that sometimes our idea of good is different from God's idea of good. You know, Jesus is telling Paul that, that I'm going to rescue you. But he's not saying that nothing will ever hurt. Because the thing that he leaves out of this story is in Acts 9, when you read the first, first time this story is told, we learn about Ananias. And, and he, is, he is meant to heal Paul and, and to remove the scales from his eyes. And Jesus actually speaks to him and he says, I want you to heal him for I will show him just how much suffering he must endure for the sake of my gospel. But now Paul, he's on the other side of it. So what Paul has learned from this, what he hears and what he's telling to Agrippa is that no matter what, that there's nothing that will silence this story. He says, I will rescue you from these people and from these people, that nothing will silence this story. And here he is. He's talking to the grandson of the guy that tried to kill Jesus in the first place, trying to silence the story of a true Messiah. And now he's standing before Agrippa, boldly speaking this same story, saying, listen, this story still can't be silenced. But I think one of the things that, that really hit me as I was reading this, that I think that he's trying to tell King Agrippa is that he has a chance to truly be a part of the family of God. In verse 18, Jesus tells Paul that he is sending him to offer forgiveness and a place amongst the sanctified. Another version says this, and they will be forgiven and given a place amongst God's people. Knowing a little bit of the background of King Agrippa, imagine what he might have been hearing. He's unloved, 
by the Jewish people because he's not the true king of the Jews. He's a political pawn of the Roman Empire, unsure of his position. I imagine that he felt like he was in the middle quite a bit, hoping that he could maybe belong completely to one or the other. And here Paul is saying that belonging is the point. He's saying that Jesus wants Agrippa to be part of the family. Paul's saying this so that he will get it. But he's still resisting it. Imagine there's things that we hear God say to us and we just, we resist it. For whatever reason. Because King Agrippa says back to him, Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? You know, as we move towards Eucharist, as we move towards communion, which is a symbol of Christ's broken body, of his blood that was spilled for us, I want you to think about this, okay? That there is another king of the Jews that's part of this story that we haven't mentioned yet. The day that Jesus was crucified, he stood before Herod Antipas. He was King Agrippa's uncle. And Jesus was mocked, and he was asked to perform miracles and parlor tricks. And when he wouldn't, he was sent back to be crucified. Agrippa asks Paul if he thinks that he'll become a Christian in one day. But the three wise men came to Herod the Great and told them the great news. And Jesus stood before Herod Antipas, and he had a chance to believe in the good news. And Agrippa's father is actually the one that kills the Apostle James and puts Peter in prison. He had a chance to believe the good news. And now Agrippa has Paul, the great apostle, standing before him, telling him the good news. And he says, do you think I'll believe in just one day? But it hadn't been just one day. It had been generations. An unavoidable hope had confronted Agrippa's family generation after generation, stuck between Israel and Rome, truly a part of neither family. Hope had time and time again stood before his family and revelation was resisted. A great light had come into the world and yet darkness did not know it. It wasn't a short time. I wonder if there's times where God has appeared to us. God appears. He, he wants to appoint. He wants to rescue, to send. And our answer to him is, this is too quick. And he's saying, no, look. I have been, I have been coming for you. Generation after generation, I have been coming for you. So Agrippa asks and Paul answers whether now or later I would have you and everyone here become just like me. Having told his whole story, he says, I would have you become just like me, pricked by the goads, knocked off my, my high horse, 
and guilty of trusting in an unavoidable hope. So today is the first Sunday of Advent, and I think that it's amazing that it's just worked out. Like I said before, it's funny these coincidences that happen. It's just worked out that today we read Acts 26, where Paul says that he's on trial for the hope that he has. And here on the first Sunday of Advent, the word that we think about is hope. He's offering King Agrippa hope. He's offering him the chance to belong. Advent does become a word that is about us seeing that Christ is coming. And we believe that our King is coming again. We have this hope. Just like Paul had, his hope was in the resurrection. We have this same hope. He invites us to be his family. I pray that we'll let Advent, these next weeks, as we walk towards Christ and we feel Christ walking towards us, I hope that we'll consciously direct our hearts towards Jesus as he moves towards us. And in this moment right now, as we move to the table, remember him. Do this in remembrance of him. Remember that he said that we would do this together with him one day in his new kingdom. That this is our hope, this unavoidable hope. This is our new life in the light of Christ. Amen.